Well, we are uh, this day in James chapter 4. We're going through the book of James this summer. Amazing thing, I'm sure you all are aware. Two days we are into the month of August. Kids go back to school in August. (laughs) Do I get an amen? Yeah, yeah, all right. The kids are saying amen too, kind of, I guess. Um, Crazy thing, though, is then, of course, then there's fall. Then there's... Let's just enjoy August, right? right, Let's let's enjoy that. I hope that what you're doing is you're taking advantage of our FaithWorks blog. Um, Our goal is throughout the week, you know, you leave this place and life happens and it's just crazy. So how can we stay in the the, the text from, from this week as we study? Faith work, our faith works blog. If you go to our facerie.org, you just kind of stare at it for a minute and you will see a faith works blog deal on our scroller. You click on it and it will take you to our, our weekly blog. Each day you have a new uh, blog entry. I think last week, uh, Mike McCullough, Mike Murphy, Elaine Ransell, Sandy Maley, um, I'm missing somebody. I knew I was going to do this, uh, but somebody else. Um, and, and what the folk do, do, I mean, you guys are the ones who write this, and it's very encouraging, and chill, Andy Boncella, I got it. It, 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 you, it. you look at the text, it keeps you in it throughout the week. It's meant as a, maybe a morning devotional, to, to, just to help you as you start your day, so let me encourage you to keep going with that. Well, interesting text this, this morning, because uh, what James is gonna do is he's gonna address uh, the whole reason for war. Why we got warring. Uh, if you've been following the news, I kind of try don't even want to follow it much anymore, besides the whole pol- politics stuff that kind of makes me like this. Uh, it's a scary, world's a scary place. If you've been following, then you know that North Korea just, uh, successfully tested their second ICBM missile. It goes up into space, uh, comes down. They are saying now that they have the capacity to strike Denver or Chicago uh, if they wanted to. As soon as they get the ability to uh, miniaturize their nuclear warheads, uh, who knows? Of course, China is flexing their ma- military muscles in major ways. Uh, Russia says that they have a bomb that if they detonate it over America, it will shut down our entire power grid, so we're all done. All electricity is done. That's a fascinating thing. Iran just tried another missile test. I think that one failed, but just a matter of time, right? Um, scary place. Uh, you look at it and you go, oh, oh man, what does the, the uh, world hold? You know, a guy, uh, he's a, a, a historian out of Yale. His name is Donald Kagan. That's right, Donald Kagan. He wrote a book on the origins of war, and he said in his book that when you look at the uh, history of the world, those times of peace have been very, very rare. Statistically speaking, war, war is the name of the game in humankind thus far. Uh, the Global Peace Index says the same thing. You know, r- right now there are 10 uh, major wars going on in this world. There are eight military conflicts going on in this world, including 64 nations, 576 militias. According to the Global Peace Index, there are only 10 countries in this world right now that are not involved in some sort of military conflict. And then they added there, they said, we are farther from world peace than we've ever been in the, well, in the last 10 years today. And this, is, this is our lot. You know, it's interesting. Will Durant said, historian, he said that in the 3,500 years of recorded history of mankind, 
Only 268 of those years have been war-free. They've been peaceful years. So think about that for a minute. 3,500 years of recorded history. 3,230 of them, basically, we've known nothing but war. That's just the way it is. the way it is. That's what, what we're about. Well, you see it all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, right? Very first brothers. Now, sibling conflict, we say, oh, that's, that's just normal. We kind of chuckle at that. But there's something going on there. Very first two brothers, they, 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 they war. They fight to the death of, of one of them, premeditated. Now, this, is what, this is us. This is what's in, in our hearts. And you would think that the war, okay, fighting, conflict, that's all out there. But at the one place you should not have any conflict, you would think, is in the church, right? The church should be a place absent of conflict. We are following after Jesus. He's the Prince of Peace, and we've been redeemed, and therefore conflict should just rarely, it should be a part of the church. Not so much, right? I think uh, uh, Charles Stanley... He's been at First Baptist of Dallas for a couple hundred years. I think he's, when he was, he was there not too long, he said that, you know, there was a conflict between himself and the deacon board. And, uh, the way Andy, his son tells it, is there was a congregational meeting or service, I think, and the chair of the deacons was kind of given his report and he was feeling this power play with Charles and he felt like they were losing and so he was getting agitated and started saying some things that were just bad things to say. Charles came up and was going to, you know, let him know, brother, you ought not to be talking like that. And the deacon turned around and just punched Charles Stanley in the face, knocked him down. This is in the church. I personally have been in churches, three different churches that have had church splits. Now, when you think through all of the energy and money and time that could have been used for the evangelization of the world or, or for discipleship or feeding the poor, something else that Jesus called us to do, it's all turned on conflict and, and that sort of deal. And so that's why James asks us in James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, what is the cause? What's causing quarrels and fights among you? You know, I think this is really fascinating to me because this is the very first church ever, the very first church, and they've got a problem with fighting in the church. And so when I hear people say, you know, I wish we could be like a New Testament church, I'm going, Jesus, you know what you're talking about there. You know which New Testament church are you referring to here? You know, these guys have had issues from the beginning, and that's because they're just people like us that was were there. So we, we look at, James poses this question to us, what causes the quarrels and fights among you? And of course, we know the answer to this question. It's simple. It's a dog question. My spouse is the reason, right? That's what we know the reason for this. Or my kids, or my boss, or my neighbors, or my, my coach, or my drill sergeant. We, we know the, 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 the cause of our problems, of our relational issues. It's them. Or maybe, you know, I've been dealt the bad hand in life. I just have. And anyone had been dealt a hand, they would have relational issues too. Or it's the stress that I'm under because I'm just under so much stress. And of course, if you've got this kind of stress going on, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out relationally somehow. So yes, I know the cause. And, and, and James would look at that and say, yeah, your spouse and your kids and your parents and your neighbors and your stress, that affects it certainly. However, he says, you don't want to start pointing outside too quickly. Because primary cause, number one cause, 
is on an internal thing. Look what he, look what he says. Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. You know, these words that he's using, this waging war. He doesn't, fights and quarrels sounds like, you know, bickering. Not, yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I, no, no. These are the terms that he uses are battle. I mean, these are warfare words. He, he, he does not go light with his vocabulary here. And so you want to ask, how come he's making such a big deal about this? I, I, if you think about the terms, think about warfare and uh, battles, uh, there's, I think this is where he's going with this, is, is it's because there is a damage, there's a collateral damage. When I was a uh, um, kid, youth group, my, my church in Chicago, it was a good church, God used it in some ways uh, in my life, but, but they, our, our congregational meetings had a reputation of being just horrible things. I mean, it was, it was gloves off, sanctification left at the door, and it was just a intense stand and scream and call names and just, it was a major issue. So you can, you can know this was like one of the number one youth events of the year. The kids, we love to go to the congregational meeting to watch the adults just blast each other. We, we would mock it and we thought, now, now think about that for just a second. That's a horrible thing. Isn't that, isn't that terrible? Isn't that twisted in some major way? The, the, the people who are supposed to be discipling us, are supposed to be leading us and, and demonstrating what it means to be a redeemed community and, and uh, following after Christ are, what are they teaching us? We're sitting and we're enjoying church fighting. I think that's what James is saying, that there is damage that happens. I mean, this is, this is this idea. It's not just a simple, I don't like him, he doesn't like me. There is damage that transpires when you destroy the community of Christ. I mean, if, John, this is fascinating. Do we have this? Jesus says, John 7, this is, this is Jesus' prayer. He's praying this before he's going to the cross the next day. So this is his last Prayer, right? It says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but that's, you know, the, the 12, right? But for also for all who will ever believe. That's you and me. Jesus is praying for you and me. And what's he praying for us? Uh, through their message, I pray that they will be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, may they be in us so that. This is why he's praying for unity, not just because it's nice to have unity and it's this good thing and it's comfortable, it's fixed, makes who wants conflict? This is a nice thing. No, no, no. Just forget that. That the world will believe you sent me. And so this, this thing is big for Jesus. And James knows, you know, the words of his brother. This is huge. This idea of it's some petty arguments will destroy. I mean, we're talking, if you listen to Jesus here, destroy the potential of people coming to know Christ. Destroy the work of God. Thy kingdom come. How can you possibly pray thy kingdom come and live like a hellion where you're fighting in between? It, it, it just doesn't work. And so uh, this, there's a lot at stake here. And so he says that, that, that you, 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 know, you want and, and you don't get it, right? And so you, you murder. That's interesting. He says you want. It's a word for passions. It's, it's a word hedonai. Maybe you've heard of hedonist. You know, your pursuit of pleasure. 
I'm pursuing my comfort and my rights and uh, my enjoyment in life. You only go around once, right? And I'm just uh, just pursuing good things for me. That's what I'm after. That's been where God fits in. That's cool along the way. But that's what I'm pursuing. Those are the passions. That's James says that's what's going on. That's where the battles come from. Because you're choosing, you're chasing these things, but you're not getting them. And when you don't get them, you murder. Now, again, the word he uses there is very graphic, so much so that there are several scholars that say that that was actually going on in the early church. There was actual physical violence. I I don't know. But he uses a strong term there. We think back, was it 1 Kings uh, 21? Remember the the story of Ahab and Naboth? Do you remember this? Ahab is the king of Israel, right? So he's got a lot of stuff going. He's the king. King's pretty good. But he looks out his palace one day, and he sees a a vineyard, nice piece of land. It's near his palace, but it's it's not his. But he's got a nice vineyard on it. He's thinking, he's he's a gardener guy. That would make a great vegetable garden. Oh, that'd be cool. I bet the soil's better, and it's closer, and it's not better. Uh, That's a great place. Oh, I need that. I need that land, right? So he goes to Naboth. He says, Naboth, I'm the king and all, and so I will pay you whatever you want for your piece of land because that'd make a great vegetable garden because I need that. My life would be so full if I had that piece of land to make my vegetable garden. And Naboth says, you don't understand this this land. I didn't like buy this last year. See, this has been in my family for generations and generations and generations and generations. It goes all the way back to, to Joshua and I can't just, I mean, it belongs to my family. I can't just sell it. And so Ahab is just fuming because he knows that life is useless unless he has that vegetable garden land. And so he goes back through his palace and he's pouting and he's doing all the things that, that, you know, kings, passive aggressive kings do, I guess. And he's just, and, and his wife sees it and lo and what's going to happen is money's going to change hand, lies are going to be made and Naboth is going to be murdered. So Ahab can go just take that vegetable garden land. Of course, the most famous, one of the most famous, I guess, is Second uh, Samuel 11. You know the story. David, King David, is looking out the window and he sees a girl. Now, he's got a harem. He's got all kinds of girls. But, you know, they're just, but this girl, oh, he needs this relationship. I mean, life is nothing if he doesn't have this. He's got the king, but what is that if he doesn't have this relationship? And so we know the story. He doesn't think and realize that this woman just happens to be married to one of his best friends, that that this woman's grandfather is one of his major uh, counselors on his cabinet. He doesn't even think about that. And so he, he's the king. He takes her, uh, ends up killing the husband, and the grandfather ends up bringing about, helping bring about a coup through his son, and just this major, major mess. Death happens all because David wanted so badly. He had to have it. You ever, you ever really want something? You've got to have this. you just got to have it. You've got to have it. Uh, fascinating story. You know, like father, like son, Second Samuel 13, crown prince, David's boy. This is just interesting how this all comes together. Just a couple of chapters after the Bathsheba thing, right? Second Samuel 13. Now you gotta, you gotta listen to get this, this right, this because it's, this is like Peyton Palace. There's just a lot of crazy things going on here. Absalom, David's son, 
had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. Now, after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Now, now, Absalom was David's son through one woman. Amnon was David's son through another woman. This woman who had Absalom also had a girl named Tamar. Absalom and Tamar obviously are close, but Amnon looks at Tamar. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very crafty man. And so he comes up with this plan of how Amnon can get alone with Tamar and overpower her and, 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 and take her. And so he does that. And then right on the heels of that, it says then, because he had to have her. He was the crown prince and all, but he had to have her. It says then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go away. And he kicks her out of the, out of the, out of the deal. Well, then Absalom, Tamar's brother, hears about this, and Absalom plots and eventually kills Amnon. Absalom hates King David because he knows King David knows about this and didn't do anything to protect his sister. And so he stirs up, stirs up a coup, and David's out. All kinds of people die. And what James, you know, this is on James's mind, what James is saying is when, when you get this covetousness thing going and you decide you're going to pursue that which you really want and need and you're going to pursue that, whether it's reputation or comfort, some creaturely comfort of some sort, you're going to pursue it. Death happens. And it's go- it always follows the pursuit of it. Relational death will always follow the pursuit of that. And to have that relational death in the church is a major, major issue. So as you covet, so as you really want to think and you can't have it, you covet. The word he uses there is, is covet. It's uh, right out of 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. And God's not just saying that because he doesn't want us to want things. Because he knows as we chase after that, death It comes when it's not the community anymore. When it's me, death comes. Um, But then James says this. This is this is wild because he says it's going to bust up the community. You're chasing after your own your own agenda. It's going, but it's going to do worse than that. In in verse three, what he says here. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I messed up the slides on this one. Let me let me read this to you uh, because it actually starts two. Uh, B, okay? This is what he says. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You ask and do not have. Now, we think that this is a verse about prayer, right? And it kind of is, but don't pull it out of its context. What this is, is this a verse about what selfishness will do to your prayer life. He says, when you embrace the chasing after yourself, you don't talk to God about it very much, do you? Matter of fact, if you're chasing that, you probably don't have a lot of time for God anymore, do you? Because if you're chasing after sin, it's really difficult to feel a love for God. 
And when you're chasing after, you're embracing, you know, my comfort and my convenience and my appetites and and my rest and my entertainment. You know, you God's over there, and you just don't have enough arms to embrace Him too. You'd like to, and all. And that's why Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You're either going to love the one and hate the other, or you're going to hate the one and love the other. You can't serve both God and mammon because you can't embrace two different things. That's what's going on. He says, your, your relationship with God is shot when you go down that road. And then he says, and even if you do ask, you're not, you, you, you got your list. And you're going to bring it to God. God, I need A, B, C. And these are all things, of course, that I want for my... my and they're, they're okay things. They're not bad things. But they're all things for me and I need. And he says, don't think God's going to play that game. He's not your genie, right? He's not going to just give you, uh, feed your self-habit. It's not what he's going to do. It's not going to happen. And, and then, the next verse. This is amazing. Verse verse 4, where he, he goes with this. you got to keep this in mind. Up to this point... Up to this point, he is, James has called the people uh, only by the name of brothers or dear brothers. You know, these, these terms of, 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 of filial love and commitment. It's, it's how he's addressed them now. Verse 4, he, he, he says, you adulterers. I mean, you could just see the veins kind of popping out of his neck when he says this. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Now, James congregations, Jewish guys, very, very, they would have understood exactly what he was talking about. He's not talking about sexual adulterers type people. In the Old Testament, especially with the prophets, Number one indictment on the nation of Israel was that they were adulterers. And the prophets just drive this home. The the picture is this in the Old Testament, that their relationship with God is like a marriage. God is, is their husband. We've got next text. For your creator will be your husband, Isaiah says. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He's your redeemer, the holy one of Israel, the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you back from your grief, as though you were a young wife abandoned by her husband, says the Lord. He's talking about the restoration of Israel. Uh, that, that there's that picture in God's mind. There's this, this picture, this marriage picture. Jeremiah lets us know what happens when we go after living for our own way. But you have been unfaithful to me, you people of Israel. You've been like a faithless wife who leaves her husband. I, the Lord, have spoken. Um, it's interesting. James is going to equate being an adulterer with being a friend of the world. Now, part of our trying to understand that causes us a little trouble is we do what uh, we would normally do, I guess. We take 21st century United States English definitions and we apply them to uh, terms that were first century Greek terms. Uh, for example, uh, friendship. Uh, in my book, friendship, I've got lots of, I got, Facebook says I got 1,100 friends, right? My, my friends are just people who aren't throwing rocks at me right now, or at least not throwing them hard even. So my, 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 that's my friendship stuff. Just, you know, you're okay with me. You're kind of friends. We're all right. Not so Hebrew. Not so Old Testament. Uh, very few people were called friends. Sometimes a friend is it's, it's like a relationship that is, is on steroids. You know, it is sometimes related with covenants. 
uh, David and Jonathan. Uh, in King David's cabinet, there was an official uh, office called the friend of the king. This was, I mean, you had the Department of Defense, the guy of defense, and you had the guy of agriculture, and you had the friend of the king. This was an official deal because a friend was somebody who was so committed to you that they were more committed to you than they were to them. They were, they were more committed to you and your benefit than their own. They admired you. And so when he says, talks about this friendship with the world, it's almost like a special friendship with the world. It's like, okay, let's, you know, I'm married to Teresa. I've got a great relationship with my wife. But what if I said, this is not true, so be real careful about this, you know. What if I said, you know, but I've got a special friend named Lola. It's a special friend. And as you listen to me, I hardly ever talk about my wife, but I'm always talking about Lola. And when I talk about Lola, my eyes kind of light up. And, 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 and you hear me for a while, and you go, whoa, 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 you try, you're an adulterer, is what you might say. And I'd say, no, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. Nothing physical has happened between myself and Lola. And you might say, well, you might believe that and say, well, okay, that's fine. But even if that's the case... You don't think about your wife, you think about Lola. You don't even talk about wanting to be with your wife, you want to be with Lola. You, you, you let the idea of who Lola is when she's about occupy your thoughts and your dreams and where you want to go and what you want to be. And She's a special friend. That's what James is saying here. He's saying there's all these people who are wed to God through Jesus, but you know what? They've got a special friend. Really what they're committed to is... The world system, which is uh, life without God, it's me. It's taking care of my passions and taking care of my appetite and taking care of, of me and making sure I'm number one. And so, yeah, James is looking at this, and these guys are say they're following Jesus, but they're living for their special friend themselves. And, and you got Jesus over here by himself doing his agenda thing from heaven, trying to hope that the church, but then the church is all over here living for themselves, and James is, is upset with this. And he says, says, you're nothing but adulterers. You have a husband. You have one that you're committed to, but you're committed really in your practice to your special friend, i.e. you. And so you're nothing more than an adulterer. I like to think, you know, I just got a foot in the world and a foot in the church. But God says, no, 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 adulterer. That's, that's, that's where you're at. That's what's going on. And then in verse uh, 5, it says, do you suppose it's no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? That's, that's a tough verse to translate, but here's, the, here's what he's saying. He's saying, you have walked away from your first love. You, you're committed to him, but you went a different way. Your passions drove you to that special friend, your, yourself, basically. So you've gone to a different way. But you need to know his passions are still for you. He is jealous, not over you because of you. He's jealous for you. He, he, that relationship that you have with God, he, he wants to protect that. And he, he's, he's hurt when he sees that being endangered. Your God is jealous. Just you walking away. It's not like it's not a big deal to God. It's a huge deal to God. It hurts God. And so he's jealous for you in that regard. He says that he gives more grace 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It says, God, you need to know this. Is what James saying. Yeah, you've walked away, but who your God is, he longs for you. He wants to have that relationship with you. He wants to call you back. And he knows it's difficult sometimes to follow. He knows. That's why he gives grace. He knows we need forgiveness, like often. That's why he gives grace. So you can come back. You're supposed to. This is a a cool text because the first six verses here, chapter 4, there's not a command in the verses. It's just, we haven't hit a command yet, right? It's just theology. It's this is what the scripture says. This is what's going on. You need to see this picture through his eyes. This is what's happening. Theology, theology, theology. But in this next six verses, you got nine commands. James starts with the theology. Understand the word of God. But then, by golly, you do something about it. Faith works. He's not interested in a faith that does not work. Are the gears rolling or not? And as we look in this next, we're going to breeze through this next section. But you just need to ask yourself, have I become a friend with the world? My special friend, myself, have I kind of walked away a little bit from him? He says in verse um, 7, Here's the answer. Here's James' answer. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Uh, when you s- submit to God, that, that's taking all of who you are, your appetites, everything else. You're not living for yourself, but you're back under the umbrella of God. I'm his servant. I'm his slave. My appetites, uh, maybe they ought not to even be fulfilled sometimes. Maybe that's not the right agenda. Maybe I need to take all of my energies and live them for him. If, in fact, these folk in the church were not pushing for their own prestige, their own power, their own place, sometimes that's that's what he's referring. That's what he's referring to. Um, Then he gives you a couple ways to submit to God. It's the first one. So resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. I, I, if you like me, I think, you know, Satan probably is hanging out with somebody else. I'm too much of a peon. He's not going to mess with me. He's with some totalitarian regime. He's with some gang members. He's with some the mafia someplace. But certainly, Satan's not hanging out with me and after me. And James is saying, hang on, don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. And let me just mention this. Some of us can be too sensitive where you're freaking out saying, you know, I went to Wegmans on Wednesday night when I probably should have been in a Bible study. And I should have really needed to feed my family. But maybe maybe that was of Satan. Forget that one for a minute. okay? just forget those kind of things. But when you start thinking trashy thoughts and you're entertaining them or you start thinking thoughts of vengeance. Or oh, you start thinking thoughts of, woe is me, bitter, I'm, I'm, I'm the victim, bitterness type thoughts. Or oh, you start thinking materialistic type thoughts. Or oh, you start thinking uh, self-promotion uh, type thoughts. You, you might be able to say, okay, those might be from hell. Is it a possibility that, that Satan himself was breathing that into your mind? And you know what, I'm just going to entertain those. I'm just going to go along. And James says, you want to submit to God? You need to to, to resist the devil and he'll flee. You shut that down because you do have the power. You can. But sometimes we might not be able to see what that that 
issue. We might not be able to recognize. We're kind of like blinded. We're numbed to Satan in, in our life. And so this next part, draw near to God. James says, this drawing near to God and resisting the devil go like hand in hand. They're they're different sides of the same coin. Let me give you an example in Isaiah 6. You know this. Isaiah is thinking he's pretty cool. He's probably thinking he's pretty cool. I'm projecting a little bit here, but he's a prophet from God. He's doing okay. But Isaiah decides to get alone with with God. So he's in the the temple, right? Now, while he's in the temple, huge manifestation of God's glory. This is Isaiah 6, huge manifestation of God's glory. You need to know that doesn't happen every time Isaiah gets alone with God. When you get alone with God, once in a while, you may have some existential experience, like, wow, really awed by who he is. That's great. That doesn't happen every time. But it will never happen if you don't avail yourself to being alone with him. So Isaiah is is alone with him, and he sees God. He's got this. And what happens when he sees God? He says, then I said, woe is me. For I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He didn't see this this problem in his heart before. He was so busy, he didn't have time to be alone with God. Uh, but but when he's alone with God, he's able to, to stop and, and see things he couldn't see before. And God's spirit, he's able to hear God's spirit now. And he's able to put his finger on things he was not even conscious of before. If we're too busy, just so we know, to be alone with God, we will never be submitted to the Lord. Because there's things that he wants to open our eyes to. There's things he wants to put his finger on that we're just not even listening to him. We're not... Trying to not listen to him, we're just not availing ourselves. And so, so Isaiah is seeing this. Like, wow, what do I do with this? He's feeling guilty. He's feeling awful, right? Woe is me. Next text. It says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with thongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Because God gives grace. That's who he is because God is jealous and for a relationship with you and gives grace and will exalt. And so he he gives Isaiah a freedom that Isaiah didn't know he needed before he got in there. But because he was alone with God, because he drew near to God. And if we follow this text, he then gives Isaiah a, a place of significance, a significant job to do that Isaiah would have never been ready to do. Had he not been alone? So here's the question. We want to submit to God? James says this is what you need to do. You need to resist the devil. You need to draw near to God. You need to be alone with God. That's where it's got to start. It goes on. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Remember, he's only called them by brother and dear brother before this few verses here. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. <laughs> They, they cleanse your hands again for the Jewish people. They, they, they. This was pictures. They, they knew this because at the temple, the place of God's presence, you came to the altar. You dropped off your. You couldn't even get to the altar, but you dropped off the sacrifice. The priest took it to the altar, slaughtered it on the altar. Then what the priest did is he walked to something called the laver, which is like this big old bird bath. And he'd wash up in it because he was a butcher. Basically, he needed to wash clean. But it goes beyond that because he's getting ready to go into the holy place in the temple, which is as close as a mortal Levite person could come to the presence of God. So he's just hanging out at that labor for a little bit. 
washing, thinking, God, is there something else that I need to be cleaned from? This is like, this is like uh, John 13. Remember, Jesus comes to the disciples, and he's going to wash their feet. And then he comes to Peter, and he says, let me wash your feet. And Peter says, oh, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, you don't have part with me. And Peter says, well, in that case, you know, wash my head and my hair and give me a whole bath. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't need a whole bath. Because you're clean. However, you've stepped in stuff. You've walked through this world. You, you have things that you need to be cleansed from. It's the same, same deal as the priests come to the altar. Sacrifice has already been made. They come to the laver. And they're, they're, they're washing in it. Lord, is there anything else? Is there, is there anything else in me that, that Psalm 139. Boy, this is incredible, incredible text. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. This is kind of the prayer you make when you come to the labor. Let me ask you, when was the last time you've come to the labor? We had an appointment with God. And the appointment with God wasn't to give me my, give my whole list of stuff that he needs to, to do for me. It was to say, you know what, Lord, would you search me? Would you see if, where I'm, I, I know I've got to be blowing it. Would you, would you show me? I just want to hear what you have. This, coming to the labor is a normal part. In the Christian Missionary Alliance, we call it the fourfold gospel. We believe in Jesus as our Savior. Christ is our sanctifier. Christ is our healer. And Christ is our coming king. And each of those have a little icon with the alliance. Well, the sanctifier is a labor. It's because the came and they were, were cleansed. Um, this next verse is an amazing <laughs> verse because he just keeps digging himself a little bit deeper, digging deeper for us. And he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. <laughs> I'm going to go home and practice this one today. Oh, what kind of application is, is this? Um, Maybe you've been talking to your parents one time when you were a kid and your mom or dad was really serious about it, but you were kind of cracking up. You couldn't keep a straight face. Or maybe you were talking to a professor or a professor's got class going on and you're just kind of laughing for whatever reason, talking with your friends. Or maybe uh, your drill sergeant, you're smiling when you shouldn't be smiling and they get in your face and they say, what do they say? They say, wipe that smile off your face, right? And what are they? Are they saying you should never be happy in life? No, that's not what they're saying. You, they're, yes, enjoy life. But right now, we're talking about something that is so serious that you obviously don't respect it. You don't understand what's going on. And so James sees these Christian folk who are living for themselves. The fight's going on. That's okay. They're pushing over each other. They're just set about getting their own thing no matter what it costs. They're the, that's where they're going. They're pampering their flesh. They're all about luxurious things for themselves. And, 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 and meanwhile, their soul shrivels. And he says, he says, you know what? Right now, you probably should be in funeral mode, not, not party mode. And the reason why is because of where you're at, because of what the sin that's going on. You know, it's not a bad thing on occasion in our Christian life. And this is what James is saying. If we want to be submitted to God, that we go on a semi-regular basis in fasting. Remember when, when Jonah goes to Nineveh? 
And he preaches the message of condemnation. Well, the whole city, the Ninevites, the king takes off his royal robes, which was a huge thing for the king to put sackcloth on. Are you serious? It's a sign of mourning. They all fast. It's a sign of grief over their sin. And and what happens because they do this? Well, Well, God relents because God gives grace to the humble. Whether you're a Ninevite or an Israelite, that's who he is. It's what he does because God is jealous over having that relationship with you. James is saying if there's a war going on inside our hearts, and you know what, we we don't take it seriously. And to take it seriously, to say I'm going to live a life of submission to him, that's going to require at times... That I come before him, I come before the labor, I, I, I put aside the pampering my flesh and the chasing after the luxuries, and I say, Lord, I just want to listen. I, I'm living my life for worldly stuff for me. What's going on in my, my soul? And as long as those times are continuous, we, we stay submitted. Look what, look what happens. You do all that, and what happens? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he'll exalt you. What a cool thing. Even if you've gone away, you can come back. He will exalt you. He's jealous for you. He gives grace uh, to the humble. It was uh, Ron Larson, I think is his his name. He wrote um, a novel called Atticus. It's a uh, retelling, really, of a, a parable that Jesus gave, demonstrating God's love and bringing us back. Atticus is a uh, 67-year-old cattle farmer in Colorado. He's got two boys, Frank and Scott. Now, Frank is a U.S. senator, very successful. Life is going well for Frank. Uh, Scott, brilliant kid, but not so much going well. Uh, A handful of years earlier, around uh, wintertime, Scott's driving, gets in a pretty horrific accident, kills his mom. Uh, anyway, he, he can't deal with this. He's in and out of, of, of psych wards. He spends time in, in Mexico just partying, just partying, partying. He comes home one Christmas. And when he gets home, Atticus is asking, so how you doing, how you doing? And he says, and he gets a little upset, and he says, Dad, I just am. You've got one son who's a huge success, any father would be proud of. And you've got one who's a slacker and using up your hard-earned cash and just getting by from week to week. He says, I'm 40 years old. You ought to be used to my being a failure by now. He then goes out for a walk, Scott does. And he comes across the, the Thunderbird that he was driving when he killed his mom. And he sits down in the driver's seat. And he's in there for quite some time. Atticus gets a little nervous about this. He goes out. He opens the door. And there's his uh, son sitting in the car. He's got one wheel on the, hand on the wheel, one on the busted windshield. And uh, Atticus asks him, are you, are, you, are you okay? He says, I'm just looking for some of her hair. I thought there was probably some hair in the windshield. Uh, Atticus, or this Scott hits an all-time low, back to Mexico. Feigns his own suicide. But he watches, he steps back and watches how Atticus comes down to this little town he was in in Mexico and just is scarring. And as he's doing this, Scott's realizing how much his dad does love him. And then he, he presents himself and says when he asked, he said, will you forgive me? He says, I felt forgiven even as I said it because I was humiliatingly unequal to his faithfulness, his loyalty, his love. 
uh, says that his shifty second son was there found and alive. And if there was hurt in his face and he seemed to have visited every room in hell, it hardly mattered now. Atticus was flooded with joy. He had his mind set on just one thing and was surprised when it got so much better. Well, this book goes on, but Scott's not coming back home. A year later, Atticus is out working on the flowers, and all of a sudden he hears a taxi pull up, and he just knows. Atticus just knows. And he drops the stuff, and he looks up, and he starts running for the taxi. And, of course, it's Scott coming home. That's that's our story. Because if, in fact, you've been away, you know, you, you've known him, but you've just been away, you can't even tell you when that happened. Maybe it was slowly. I'm not sure how I got to where I am today. Uh, James says, if you come back, if you humble yourself, you know what? He will give you grace. That's pure forgiveness. That's pure love. He will exalt you. He can make up for the years that the locusts have eaten. For myself, for us, to be a person who lives uh, their life under the submission of uh, Christ, in submission to who God is, recognizing this warring in my heart, but resisting, saying no, being submitted to him. Uh, boy, that's the goal, isn't it? That's, what could God do with a church that's committed to that? Would you, would you pray with me?